This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guests this week, Janine Hayat, Director of Collective Action at the Fair Education Alliance. Ogali, Ogani, Erikago, who's a student at Oxford University and member of the Youth Steering Group for the Fair Education Alliance. In a fascinating discussion, we confront inequality in education. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back as the introduction dies away. Welcome to my guests, Agali and Janine. We are going to discuss today equality in education. Equality, I don't know what you think, dear listener, equality means, but I think it means giving equal opportunities to all. It means developing the capacities of students equally. But while no one would disagree with that aspiration, and I think we all hope that schools provide that, it's also quite clear to us that we live in a deeply unequal society where the advantages of some and the disadvantages of others are not compensated for by schools. So Janine, if I start with you, what can we do? What can we do to make schools more effective at confronting inequality? And what drew you personally to the the issue of fairness in schools? Personally, so many things that drew me to this work. You can probably hear that I'm American originally. Um, And I I went to a state school in the US and have kind of personal experience with educational inequality and also what a fantastic state education can do to your life chances. But then um, moving here, I'm I'm trained as a lawyer originally, worked on education reform in the U.S., and um, then made a career change to be a secondary English teacher and um, saw kind of what um, what great and not so great state education can, can look like here. Now I have three kids who are going through the state education system here. Um, so I've seen it from a lot of different perspectives as someone um, experiencing education, working on education reform, and then experiencing kind of the next generation of education, and then alongside that being a teacher. Um, and I think, I think there's so much, it's, it's one of the few um, elements of public life that every single person in society has an experience with. And I think that can be quite frustrating for um, teachers and school leaders because everyone thinks they know what great looks like and everyone has a, quite a, an emotional attachment to it. But I think it also gives it this power as a political topic because it's something that should speak to everyone. And I think if we if we frame it right and if we bring people in right, can speak to everyone. But what we've seen is education falling further and further down the ladder as an issue that voters care about or an issue that's grabbing people's attention. Um, and it is one of the biggest levers we have for improving the lives of the next generation, for improving the um, outcomes, career prospects, 
um, but also kind of world view of the next generation. Right. So it's about, it's about like, how do we, how do we achieve like kind of economic equality for our children and their children? But it's also about like, how do you conceive of the world? How do you conceive of your place in it? And are you kind of equipped? to um, be happy, to deal with life, to find fulfilling work, all of that stuff. Um, so that's why I think it's absolutely crucial and why it's so important to have this conversation because I think I think all of us together can kind of push it up the list of social consciousness. It, it is slightly terrifying to any teacher listening to this and as a retired teacher now to think that the impact you can have for good and ill and uh, and what the responsibility of schools are, as you say, they shape they they're designing the future, they're shaping the future. Agali, now you you are currently at Oxford, so in a sense you could say, well, uh, the, the education system has done brilliantly for me. It's it's just worked wonderfully because <laughs> you have succeeded, or are succeed or, or succeeding. Well, at least on the outside, look like I've succeeded so far. Absolutely. Yeah. So you might be you might be a model for how this you know st- stop the show now it's all fine. <laughs> Is that what was your view of the obstacles you faced? Absolutely. I think that's um a really good point to make especially in terms of it kind of looking like for me I've kind of succeeded I've hit the top kind of upper echelons of education. Um but I think it's also really important to kind of understanding my story and my lived experience um in this um experience that I've had with like poverty for example being black you know being a woman in education these are all different obstacles and barriers that I faced in my educational journey so obviously right now I can look back at it and think do you know what this is this is a success I've gotten to Oxford and stuff but that doesn't take away from the fact that I had so much kind of in my way to get me to Oxford um, and I, I, I had to do, I, I would say personally that I worked a lot harder um, than people who had the privileges that I didn't have, um, whether that be in primary school and secondary school and onwards, um, to get to Oxford. It took a lot of like different programs that I had to be part of, um, loads of hours and lots of work that I had to do that I don't feel like anyone else um, who didn't have to share my struggle didn't have to experience either. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think on the outside, it looks like an easy path to success. When realistically, like there were just so many different barriers, um, and many of them are like barriers that I don't think lots of people in the education system, just in society in general, are aware of. Only because if you aren't kind of underprivileged or you don't have that disadvantage, then you have no reason to believe that it exists. Um, so there are a lot of like kind of I would call them silent obstacles that I had to go through um, that I don't think were uh, adequately acknowledged um, in society. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I remember a few years ago, one of the jobs I had at school was to write um, references for students. And I would show them the reference beforehand to go to university. And there was a student applying to, to Oxford, Cambridge, other places, one of those. And I wrote the I wrote reference. I said, oh, I've written your reference. Which I could look at it, make sure I'm so that we're okay. And I'd written the phrase that I, I don't know, I was probably a bit lazy. It was a kind of phrase you tend to use. This student is very good. She Things that other students find difficult, she finds easy. She said, Sandra, don't, don't write that. She said, nothing, nothing that I, you, that you see about me is, is easy. It's just relentless hard work. And I, I was, I was chastened by that because as you say, your success is based upon overcoming things and working hard and taking, taking, um, taking a very hard road. 
you said I love the phrase you just used the silent obstacles what 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 way were they silent and how did they work on you absolutely so um I think I will also preface that by saying I feel like some of the silent obstacles that I had were also silent to myself like it took me a little while for me to realize that they were these were also obstacles um but I would probably say kind of the biggest ones were related to like poverty and um being from a lower socioeconomic background because it affected me in so many different ways and as I said a lots of ways I didn't really realize until I got to like university and onwards so for example like I didn't have the money to like buy textbooks that other people might have. I didn't have the money for private tuition, for example, that other people I know in my classes did have. Um, and it's really strange because there was someone else in my sixth form who made it into um, Cambridge, but they were the absolute opposite of me. So they had like their pet, they had two parents at home, you know, didn't come from a low socioeconomic background. And when I spoke to them about their educational experience, I think they were a bit in shock by the amount of like things that I had to overcome compared to what they had to overcome because they've just had this clear path to success. Whereas for me, it's almost like there's been these little thorns or like hurdles to jump over on the way to success. Um, another silent barrier that I'd say that I had that was silent to myself um, was when I got to university, I actually got diagnosed with a learning dis- disability um, called dyspraxia which is essentially a disability that affects motor coordination um, in, in particular. And that is something that I'd struggled with like literally my entire life that I didn't realise until I was in my first year of university. So it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I realised that this has actually had an effect on my life. Um, I think a couple of months after I got diagnosed, I started to look back at the kind of journey I'd had in education. And I was sitting there thinking like, all these different things that maybe I wasn't quick enough to pick up like everyone else in my class was, or I'd got told off for doing X, Y, Z this actually had to do with this like impairment that I had that I had no idea that I that I was actually you know someone who had this impairment um so I feel like yeah kind of everything that I kind of experienced relating to poverty lower socioeconomic background was a silent obstacle that was silent to kind of everybody else but like the neurodiversity um of having dyspraxia was something that was wasn't just silent to everyone else but also silent to myself I would say Mm. and it because it's silent because as a teacher, I can you, you see students in front of you, and and yet you're seeing the tip of an iceberg. Uh, outside of what you see are their lives, and they can be wonderfully um, resourced or difficult or uh, face all sorts of difficult things. And that, that beha- bad behaviour in front of you, or that or that um, tiredness, might be the result of things you can't you can't see or understand necessarily by by looking at them. Did your, I'll give you one more question. Did your school help or hinder? And did you feel as you went through this, this is a place I'm being assisted in? Absolutely. That's a really interesting question. Um, And I think my kind of answer is a bit nuanced um, and probably not the answer that's expected. But I will say the school was very, very helpful for me in particular. Um, I think for them, I was very much their success story that they wanted to make. So they obviously were aware of all of the different things that I faced as obstacles, you know, coming from a lower socioeconomic background, single parent household, black, female, all of these different labels. They knew about that and they were just like, do you know what? We see the potential in you and we want to ensure that you can get to the places you deserve to be, ideally Oxford. Um, and so we're going to put do everything in our power to ensure that you get there. But what I will say is, I think there's a bit of nuance in it because I had spoken to someone in the year below me. Um, so obviously when I was in my first year of university, they were all in year 13, applying to university as well. Um, and they kind of said that like, 
after I left, there wasn't really any replication to try and push people towards Oxbridge, people who would have had similar kind of backgrounds to me, which I found was very interesting. And I feel like as well, it was a matter of the school kind of understanding, because I didn't really come from the richest school. I think it was the school kind of understanding, do you know what? We only have resources to push one person who we truly believe in into this direction. And we know that we don't have the resources to push the 10 other people in the year below who we know could make it, um, but we don't want to take that chance. So I think it was um, a matter of my school put everything into me, but it was kind of everything they had at the at the same time. I think, Agali, that's a really important point you've made there about the resources that are available to schools and their prioritising of what they will define success to be, that success criteria that schools have increasingly forced upon them by external forces. In other words, the definition of what makes a successful student has narrowed to become something very numerical, very outputs driven. And Janine, I'd like to ask you about that. Do you see schools as defining success too narrowly? I think this goes to what we just started talking about um, a few minutes ago, John, which is like, what is the purpose of education? What are we trying to achieve um, for every young person? And if what we're trying to achieve is to enable our young people to thrive in life and in work and to do that for every young person in the country, um, we are not building a system that is doing that um, as well as it could. And we're certainly not doing it at the moment, right? We're not doing it in um, kind of by any measure, it, by by the measures we've set up to do it, which is um, it, success at um, GCSE and success at A-level and um, progression to university. You know, we've just had a look at, at the gaps between um, poorer and richer pupils. And those gaps are at their highest point in a decade. Um, when we look at um, uh, English and math GCSEs, and even before that, if we look at numeracy and literacy at the end of key stage two, um, and if we look at progression to university, the gaps between wealthier and poorer pupils are um, wider than they have been in a decade and had their single highest jump in the last year. So even by the within the system we've built, right, we're not we're not getting success for a huge proportion of kids. But then if we zoom out and think about like what is this system that we have built, um, it if it is success at GCSEs and progression to university um, going to give um, everyone the skills that they need to get a job that will be fulfilling to them. Or is it giving them kind of um, the social and emotional competencies to kind of be happy in school, but then also deal with life after school? So I think there's like a lot of layers at which you can examine that question, depending on kind of how radical a change you're willing to kind of take on within the system. But even in the, the least radical version of that change, are we getting every child we possibly can um, the best scores they can on exams. We're not, we're not doing that. And I think, John, the point you were, you were kind of hinting at is like, what, you know, are we getting as many 
grade fours to grade fives as we can. Are we pushing them over that like not passing to passing boundary? And yes, we are, we are incentivized right now to focus on that pass boundary. And, um, it's, it's a really, and, and I get why I get why, because, um, we, need to, we want to make sure that schools are doing the best job possible for um, the pupils they serve, especially pupils who are facing the greatest challenges. But it is creating a system where it puts a lot of pressure on that boundary at the expense of everything else. Any any system where you measure outputs, the outputs become the way the school designs what it teaches. So as in my teaching career, when it was A to C or whether it was now it's fours to five, as you say, that becomes what the te- teachers have to do because their careers, their school depend upon it. Yeah. And there's this question of, you know, it's a significant portion of pupils that don't get that passing mark. And I think what happens to those pupils um, as well, because there's probably there, there's some people who would in in good faith say, but we should be, we should be getting every student that passing mark, get them that five in English and math. And I think most teachers would tell you there will still be students who won't get that five. Um, and are we, are we making sure that there's a pathway for them too? Because those people are still kind of worthwhile humans who are going to go out into the world and grow into adults and have their own kids and need a job. Um, and so I think it, it kind of creates this, we're at risk of creating a sense of, of like total lifelong failure um, for people who don't get that five when there will be people who don't. I agree with that. I, mean, I, I very, very disappointingly feel looking back on my teaching career that one of the products of much of my, of not my, hopefully not mine too much, but one of the products of the schools that I worked at was a lot of failure. A lot of students who left school saying, well, that didn't work for me. I didn't like school. I've learned that I can't understand poetry. What a thing to learn. You know, I've learned that I can't understand this particular subject. Well, again, what a thing to learn. And what you want is people to learn what they can do. And and, and above all, what they can do is limitless. I mean, I know that's idealistic, but I, I want it to be true. Ogali, one one of the things that seems to be terrifying, really, is that students who enter school at a very young age with reading difficulties will leave school with reading difficulties. There's an there's awful uh, a lot of evidence that schools have less impact on family background and socioeconomic background than might be true. When you entered school, on, on day one, did the people say, wow, she's, this, this girl can read. She's, she's got the smarts. Or did, so did you start with an advantage? That is a really, really good question. And it's something that I need to rack my brain about because this was quite a while ago. And I like to say that I'm getting old, but I'm only like 19. So I need to stop saying that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> what I will say is I remember early on kind of in primary school, we had reading groups. And I remember I was always in the reading group that was like, 17 plus 18 plus so that was like the highest reading group and if you know me now at the University of Oxford my first year I'm now in my second year my first year was such a whirlwind because I was learning how to like properly read and take away things from reading which is something that I'd literally never done before in my whole kind of educational career so I kind of feel like can I interrupt you there did they help you with that because state school kids my, my daughter went to Cambridge 
she went to a state school. And they did, it was like, hey, you made it to Cambridge, you probably learnt, know all this stuff already. Was, was there a kind of an emphasis on, a sense in which they thought, well, you, you know, you can just do this. You know, in a way, in a way, when my other daughter went to another different kind of university, they said, "What well, year, year one, you learn how to study. Whereas at Cambridge, it was like, you know how to study, don't you? That was literally, there was almost this like assumption of kind of knowledge or your level of intelligence. I don't want to say intelligent because I don't think I'm any less intelligent because I wasn't the best reader when I was 18 years old compared to anyone else going to the university. But I will say there is this kind of assumed um, kind of level of functioning or understanding. And I think the problem is, is that assumed kind of basis or level doesn't come from, I don't think it comes from the average state school student. I think it's like an echoing of the fact that Oxford and Cambridge in particular, a lot of these higher up universities, they kind of like historically rest on admitting people from private schools who obviously will have the support, will have had private tuition and stuff. So we'll be coming with that basis level that's a little bit higher than those coming from state schools. But it's not a matter of anyone's any more or less intelligent than anyone else. It's literally just a matter of you've had more resources, you've had more support. Like, even when I think about it, to go back to the um, kind of first question, um, when I was like in those groups that was like 17 plus, 18 plus for reading age, I was literally struggling and I was so far behind everyone else kind of in my group, which is something one teachers didn't clock onto. Um, and two, I think as well, what I learned from the other students was as they didn't have the disadvantage that I had, when they went home, reading was something they did for fun. Like they had like bookshelves with books on books on books. I mean, when I look around my room, I don't have any bookshelves. I don't have any books. So like I didn't really have the opportunity, that space to kind of grow outside um, of school as well. So I don't think it's like possible for me to get to that basis level of understanding or like knowledge that universities at Oxford or Cambridge for, like expect you to be at once you get there if I don't have the facilities to build on kind of what I'm learning in school outside of school so as well. So in a sense, you, you, what you're saying is you've arrived, you've arrived, you arrived at Oxford and realised there was a whole lifetime of cultural capital that other students had. But you're doing psychology and philosophy. Now, philosophy, yeah, that's pretty... <laughs> so when did... When did um, and, you, and yet you say there weren't a lot of books at home. Was there, there must have been a lot of conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a stereotype now, aren't I? There, was there a, you know, there was a lot of conversation around the dinner table over Kant and Marx and so on? Or was there not? I mean, where did where did the ideas come into your mind and life? That is also a, that is a really good question because now that when I think about it at home, there was no discussion of philosophy at all. I will also preface this by saying before I came to the University of Oxford to study psychology and philosophy, I had no idea what philosophy was. Like I had never really like spoken about it. I didn't really. I'd heard the big. Oh, I hadn't even heard of Kant, but I heard like the big names like Descartes and stuff, and I was like, I want to be like those guys. I don't really know what they do, but. I directly related to philosophy but used and draw, drew on a lot of the skills in philosophy so it would be like critically analyzing something that I've seen um, on social media for example or having a fallout with a friend and me trying to analyze okay what were the reasons as to why we fell out what how should I how should I move forward from this what is their perspective and that type of thing um, so I would say very much these were aided by the fact that I was kind of a disadvantaged or underprivileged person because I'd be falling into those scenarios, I'd say a little bit more. Um, so for example, whether it be like an issue of social justice, and I'm talking to a friend who's not the same race as me and doesn't understand the kind of struggles that I go through being a black person, well, I need to think to myself, what are the critical ways that I can explain this? That isn't just the way it is, but makes it easier for them to understand because they're not going to understand it from my perspective and they, they never can. So how can I mould my answer to still have it stick to the truth, 
but have it express it in a way that's easier for them to understand someone who doesn't understand the full picture. So I would say just kind of like falling into um, kind of social justice instances like that, I was able to develop the critical thinking skills that were then necessary in philosophy. And I will say, it's not something that I fell into easily as well. Like it very much took me like the entirety of like not doing too well in my first year for it to start making sense in my second year. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I would say I kind of learned those skills, just not really in the household, just everywhere outside of the household, in life, in the kind of area that I live in and in school. And if I could come in there, because I I feel like everything you just described, Ogale, is a lot of like what in the sector we refer to as social emotional learning or experiential learning or like developing the whole child or all of this stuff that feels like, I think, quite fuzzy sometimes. Um, we actually like do have evidence that um, developing strong literacy in kids who are behind in literacy in primary school, like comes down to having experiences that are meaningful to them that make them want to engage with the content or um, kind of linking what they're seeing in life to what they're studying in school. And so I think it's like all of these um, kind of, I don't even want to call them softer things because it actually is like really linked to those like hard skills of what, what mark are you going to get on your English GCSE? Um, it, it is related to like all of those like experiences and wider curriculum and social emotional stuff. And I think like probably like does actually benefit kids who have fewer of those resources at home um, and why kind of the narrowing of the curriculum is is really detrimental um, to those people. And, and rewarding and recognizing that kind of critical thinking so that students know it's important and get some sense of it. I mean, at some point, Agali, there must have been a moment when you when you, in school you knew you were doing well, and teachers said, "Well, that's very clever," or "That's a good thing," or "You've written that nicely," and that becomes the loop, the feedback loop that gives you the impetus to work harder. And for a lot of students, because the opposite is true, the sense is they they collide with a series of things they don't get and understand, and soon become alienated. How how could we? I'm going to throw this one out there. I don't know who wants to go. Jenny, I'll ask you first. How can we make schools better? Why isn't every... And I'll, and I'll add another bit to that as well to make it even more ridiculous a question. How can we make schools better? And why isn't every school in every neighbourhood as good as every other school? Which is clearly not the case either. So many answers to that question. I have so many answers. Um, but I, I actually... Okay. Um, I'm going to start like very big and then get um smaller but i think i think one obvious issue is that there is a worsening picture for the poorest children generally and we can't ignore the barrier that everything happening to some children outside the school gates has on their educational outcomes why, why is it getting worse i mean again if if my father walked out of school in the 19, late 1930s, before the Second World War, with no qualifications, be, became a great in, an engineer, travelled the world as an engineer, and someone in the 1950s would have left the end of the Second World War thinking, well, it's got to get better, isn't it? You know, comprehensive education, it's going to get better. To the idea that we're actually serving poorer children worse and the disparities and the inequalities are worse. Why? 
Well, I guess, um, I guess it's an interesting question of whether we're actually serving poor children worse than we were in that post-war era. Cause I'm not sure that that is entirely true, but I think that's probably like not the bar we want to set ourselves, right? Um, I think we can probably do, do slightly better than that. But I, I guess like as far as like poverty levels, poverty levels are increasing. So the DWP's child poverty statistics came out, um, last week and there were, 350,000 more children pulled into poverty last year than the year before. And that's before the cost of living crisis this autumn. So that, so the, the kind of challenges that children are facing outside of school to their housing security, their food security, their ability to get kind of like their basic needs met is those, those issues are, are increasing. Right. And so then, and schools are often the consist- consistent touch point for those poorest families. And they are, they have been for years now and are increasingly finding themselves needing to pick up more of the pieces, right? So like roles like family support officers, um, are increasingly just fielding. We hear, uh, family support officers spending their days finding beds for children, trying to procure washing machines, dryers, things that like, an increasing number of homeless families need, you know, we've all heard about schools opening food banks, all of these things that are outside of the remit of education, that schools are, um, because they care about the families they serve, um, and because they have that consistent touch point with children, they're stepping in to do it. And they're stepping in to do it with um, kind of resource that is, um, you know, increasing in numbers, but decreasing in real terms. Um, you know, the, we saw that schools got an additional, I think, 2.3 billion in last autumn's budget, but that will barely co- cover their increasing energy costs, their increasing food costs, um, let alone, um, cover the increasing interventions that really, um, their, their kids need coming out of the pandemic and due to all the rising poverty and knock on effects that we've just heard. So I think like macro, we have, um, the, the poorest pupils with growing need and the, the category of poor pupils, the number of pupils falling into that category of poor growing. You have schools with, with less resource to deal with it. And you have a teacher recruitment and retention crisis that, um, schools are needing to spend more money recruiting, um, teachers and the, shortage of teachers is affecting the um, schools serving the poorest populations disproportionately. So um, when a poor school or school serving a higher percentage of preschool meal eligible pupils has a vacancy, it will, it's likely to sit open longer and they're likely to have to spend more money filling it. So all of those like macro problems um, are big ones. And some of them are much wider than education, right? Some of them are about the benefit system. It's about like the, it's about like the wider picture of employment and, and workforce and stuff. Um, but it matters to education. Um, uh, so, so one thing I think we need to do better as a society, but like, I think we're increasingly recognizing as a sector is more targeted support to address poverty because poverty has a knock on effect on education. Um, but then I think we need to, um, and we need, and part of that is properly funding schools 
and supporting um, having having solutions to the teacher recruitment and retention crisis, such as workload reduction, increased pay, better um, as solutions around flexible working that allows the profession to be more competitive with other professions that are drawing um, teachers away and drawing new entrants into the profession away. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. This week, we're discussing confronting inequality in education with my guests, Janine Hyatt, Director of Collective Action from the Fair Education Alliance, and Ogali Ogeni Arekigo, student at Oxford University and member of the Youth Steering Group for the Fair Education Alliance. I had a guest a few weeks ago, Lee Elliott Major, who's a professor of um, social mobility, and he 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 pointed out, he said, well, actually, funding in schools is not what you think it should be. You think, obviously, any sensible human being, the schools with the more kids on free school meals would get more funding, and schools in difficult areas would get more funding. He said, that's not the case. It's astonishingly, it's not the case. <laughs> that That simply alone that you would think would be the most obvious is fund schools with greater problems more. Ogali, you went to a state school. Did you find there were times when you thought, this isn't good? Or, I mean, you said you said you, you, you liked, the school did, did a good job for you. But were there classes that were maybe could be smaller or books in the library that were missing or, I don't want to lead you. Could, could you have changed your school better? Could you, make, could you have improved the school experience? No, absolutely. I think that's a really good question. I think I would say um, I probably would have changed it, not for like the actual school itself, but for half of the pupils who went there. Only because my school was quite interesting because like half of it was kind of situated in this quite rich area where like, you know, parents often married, um, had like semi-detached houses and stuff. And then like if you walked 10 minutes down the road the opposite way, you had like council estates, you had people living in poverty. Um, and so kind of the school was a bit divided in that there were kids who obviously came from privilege and kids who really didn't. Um, and I would say, obviously, I gave my case being a success story. I think I was quite lucky because I was one of the few kids who came from not privilege or a lack of privilege where I actually was like kind of enabled to have success and to kind of go further. Um so I feel like um, with the example that you gave of like missing books in the library, I think the library is quite nice, actually. Um, so I would say that. But I will say there was almost this gap of like motivation um, where I did kind of notice as well, like we did have the opportunity in school, like we had lots of books in the library. But why was it the case that you didn't find people who um, 
were underprivileged in that library? Why was it the people who were privileged were in that library? And I think it comes back to this kind of talk of poverty that we're having. Um, and kind of, I can speak from my own lived experience of living in poverty, that it very much is something that takes away your motivation. Um, like you have less opportunities and therefore you feel kind of less motivated to take the opportunities that do come to you um, because you haven't really, not really in the kind of mindset or the ability or the place or the space where you feel like you can take those opportunities. Magali, you obviously worked really hard to get to Oxford. And I don't know, having taught in the state system, that I've ever come across a student who didn't go to Oxford and Cambridge without working with extraordinary determination. However, the number of students at Oxford and Cambridge from private schools is disproportionate to the number of private schools in the country. And the effect of Oxford and Cambridge on the institutions of power in this country, their, their dominance of our system, the law and media and the professions generally. I just wonder, this is a difficult question, probably a bit of an unfair question in a way. Are elite universities part of the problem when it comes to confronting inequality? That is a very hard one. And it's something that I've actually thought quite a lot about, um, only because from hearing from other young people, they have kind of said similar things where they're like, it's great that you go to Oxford, but what about the person sitting next to you who's not going to get the grades, who doesn't have the ambition to go to Oxford? What about them? Um, and I definitely understand and see where they're coming from. And I think for me, the way I would kind of target it isn't that we should get rid of universities at Oxford and Cambridge, because very much, as I've already touched on, and as, as you've touched on as well, like historically, these are very much benefited, privileged people, typically from private schools. And I feel like kind of part of changing that narrative is keeping those kind of same universities in place, but allowing the people who are once oppressed by those universities to be able to go there and then reap the kind of privilege and reward that comes from going there. So for example, if Oxford and Cambridge wasn't a thing, then I wouldn't be the success story that I am. Um, But I do definitely understand and definitely agree that the education system sometimes very much narrows kind of value towards only Oxford and Cambridge and just universities that are uh, Russell Group and higher off um, kind of thought of. So I believe that kind of the true change doesn't come from taking anything away from Oxbridge or any universities like that. But the real change comes from widening the scope and making it more inclusive for people who I think Janine mentioned before, like not leaving any child behind, ensuring that there's, there's people who are sitting next to me who might not have any any real idea or any ambition to go to Oxford like there is another path that is just as suitable as going to Oxford that is for them um, and it absolutely is suited in order to get them to where they want to be or they need to be whether that's a BTEC or like a vocational qualification something along those lines that does account for them and then I feel like it would get rid of this issue of thinking that universities like Oxford and Cambridge are the problem I think they are part of the problem and personally I don't think they're doing enough to kind of clear up for the fact that they are part of the problem um, but I think getting rid of them absolutely takes away this possibility of, of having success stories like myself where people who are once oppressed by these kind of systems are able to take advantage of them to kind of reap the kind of successes that they never would have had the opportunity to reap in the past. I agree with that I think it's really well put Agale because um I completely get the question and I think we we sometimes put too much on those two universities you know like if you're like saying this this school is the best state school in the country because it's gotten as many kids into oxbridge as eaton and it's you know measuring measuring everything by that that single um measure but i i do think we have to be careful about if if you take that away what are you replacing it with and right now um russell group universities do have a huge capacity to enable social mobility. 
Um, and they, they do lots and could do more to enable social mobility. Um, university might not be the best route for every job, but part of, I think, um, creating more equal society is maybe breaking down that um, dichotomy between academic and technical routes. Because if we can get maybe more middle-class kids, kids from money to consider those technical routes and break down that um, stigma um, that for some jobs, for some endpoint careers, an apprenticeship is the right thing, university is the right thing, or BTEC is the right thing, and and try to kind of get more um, different types of people taking different types of routes. I think that's part of the answer. But I think if you take away if if you if you say let's let's just call it all university generica, um, then what? How are people being sorted, and how are people getting the jobs after university? You risk it coming down more to family background and connections than it does now. Um, and I think that's a, that's a bit of a similar challenge that we face maybe with some of the curriculum reform conversations and, um, you know, getting rid of GCSEs, which I think we could have like a very a, a interesting conversation about that. But it's always what, what are we replacing it with? And we need to be really mindful that it's not further advantaging people with the most disadvantages because sometimes those um, established pathways are a bit easier to navigate than pathways that aren't established and require kind of back-channel knowledge. That, I think, is such a good point, that the sharp-elbowed middle classes will always navigate changes to systems of assessment, particularly, better than people without their cultural, social capital and advantages of navigating systems. The American system is um, an interesting one to look to because we, um, when I went through it, it was not exam driven. There wasn't even a national curriculum. Um, and for those who went to what happened to be a good school with good teachers, I had a great high school experience and I, it, you know, it set me up well to get into a good university and that was lucky for me. But your your admission to university was based very largely on, you know, whether your parents could hire someone to write your college admission essay for you, whether they could hire uh, an SAT tutor for you, um, whether you went on really interesting trips or like someone helped you start a charity at 16, or you had all of these amazing experiences that you could bring into a holistic application. And I think like, that has given me this really interesting counterpoint to what has been an overly pressurized and imperfect exam system. But I think we have to be really careful with throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Interesting. Yeah, I remember reading something from the Sutton Trust a few years ago. And the Sutton Trust carried out a survey of uh, personal statements, but personal statements written for UCAS applications, which are going to become a thing of the past. They're going to be, or at least they're going to change. But the personal statement, of state school students and the personal statement of private school students, and the state school student would proudly say, "Well, I, uh, I, I helped, the, you know, I helped organise the library committee or something." <laughs> and then the, the private school student would say, "Well, I, I did a did an, um, a summer working at my father's law firm." And he said, "Well, it's, it's really 
extraordinarily different the, adv- the life advantages of one group to another. And uh, when you go to Cape, to Oxford, uh, do you encounter students who say, "Well, I'm just going off skiing for the for the holes," or is there is there is there a, a sense in which there's those students who have always expected to be here and have the advantages, and then there's you that work to get there. That is the case, and I think it's the case so much that it's actually kind of scary, and I think that's what's the, the kind of daunting thing for state school students to kind of come to the universities of Oxford or Cambridge and come and find out that there's almost, you know, you're kind of sitting there in your kind of imposter syndrome thinking, I don't really belong here, but then the person sitting next to you, they look as if, like, they're, they're playing the part as if this is kind of destined for them. And I feel like that was something that I clocked onto quite quickly when I got to kind of my first year um, at Oxford. And I'm quite lucky the college I go to, um, it's quite chilled and laid back, but there are still quite a lot of privileged individuals who kind of don't really admit that they have privilege, but will still kind of manifest in thinking that they belong to be here and that someone like me doesn't. Um, So for example, I used to have this friend in my first year and her dad is a millionaire. Um, owns his own company and, and everything and she was telling me about how her kind of educational journey was that she'd gotten like the highest grades even got like a round of applause for one of her grades and stuff and she was looking at me kind of expecting because I believe that everyone else she'd told this story had like smiled and been like you are amazing I think she was expecting that same reaction from me and I just kind of looked at her like I don't know what you want me to do with this information. Like, would you like a round of applause? Because I'm not going to give you one. And it sounds a bit cutthroat, but very much kind of my understanding of that situation was like, you have all these things, you kind of started off life with all the things that I didn't have. And we ended up in the same place. So very much you've kind of done almost what's expected of you with the kind of resources that you've had to allow you to get to that place. And I haven't. So if anything, I'm the one who deserves the round of applause here, not you. Um, But yeah, I feel like I kind of, there are lots of people at the University um, of Oxford in particular, I'm assuming it's the same at Cambridge, who almost have this feeling as if they belong um, at the university. But I feel like the thing that gets state school students is not just that they feel like they belong there, but by kind of default of that, it makes you as a state school student feel like you shouldn't belong there. And that anything that you have achieved, like whether or not it's like you've gotten an A star, you might have gotten A star, A star A or triple A to get to the university, but the person um, who went to the private school down the road got like three A stars and it makes you think, well, maybe I don't belong to be here, but realistically, like, we both accepted the same conditions. We both got into university, so realistically, we are equals at this university. It's not about you feel like you belong here, because by default, we kind of all belong here, because if, if I didn't belong here, and if you didn't belong here, we wouldn't have gotten into the university. Yes, I've spoken to students, past students who've gone to Oxford or Cambridge, and there is very much a sense in once you're there, you're part of the club. However, Many of them felt they didn't have the social capital that surrounded a lot of the students, the connections. And indeed, they were less focused while they were there on making connections, on networking. I was reading about Boris Johnson's experience at Oxford, or rather Boris Johnson's attitude to Oxford, and how he went there partly to marry well and make connections as well as get a degree. And I wonder if those opportunities, those social capital opportunities are as easily available to someone from a state school background? Absolutely, I think there is. Um, And I think you've kind of touched on it when talking about kind of that networking, having like people around you who know people who know people who you should know. Um, And kind of me coming to university, like I very much knew I didn't have any of those people who I should know. 
Um, and even worse, I kind of lack the skills to kind of get to know those people because obviously the universities of Oxford and Cambridge are literally the places to be um, if you want to succeed in whatever career you want to get to. And very much like skills like networking are probably skills that someone who comes from a state school isn't really going to have. So it's gonna it's, it was something for me that I very much had to like learn and learn quickly and learn how to do well um, when I came to Oxford. It's very much something that like no one tells you about that either. Like you very much just kind of stumble onto it um, and just kind of have to start adapting and looking at the people around you and thinking, well, I don't want to be left behind. I've come to this place and we're supposedly supposed to be equal, but you seem like you still have a million times more advantage than I do. So it's very much, even once you feel like you've finished the chase of getting to the university in the first place, the chase is still going. Like you're still chasing to kind of close that disadvantage that other people um, that privilege that other people have over you. Yeah, I think it's, it is hard to disentangle education from society to take us full circle to where we started, just like the impact that education has on anything, everything. But I guess just sticking to the education system, I think if we we're starting from scratch, we'd want a society where everyone has a place, right? Everyone can feel themselves to be successful in work and um, feel themselves equipped to um, be a coping adult who's happy in life and working backwards from that like what what does that mean our education system should be I mean it should be more um, fairly funded it should be more equal all of that stuff but I think it also needs to be one where schools are inclusive, where everyone feels they have a place, everyone feels they have something they can succeed at, and they can kind of lean into that passion and develop that love that they then carry with them after school. Um, and so that's about kind of schools having enough resource to nurture that and schools having um, staff that can nurture it and us having a curriculum and assessment and accountability system that kind of recognizes schools doing that work. If I were to start from scratch, and view an education system or design an education system from the viewpoint of the other side of the veil of ignorance, I would abolish private education, most certainly. I would have random allocation of places in secondary school from primary school. And I would have random allocation of places at university. I think only a radical solution like that would confront in any way the deeply entrenched class advantages and inequalities we're describing. I'm never going to get elected to Parliament on that platform, nor would any political party in this country. And that, well, is true. Something that I've kind of learned from coming from a state school and not necessarily a big one, um, I will say as well, I think there is almost this disparity that exists between state schools as well. I think Janine mentioned um, those state schools who say, you know, we've sent X, Y, Z amount of pupils to Oxbridge more than eaten this year or whatever and I will say in terms of I think the uh, strategy that you mentioned John that's something that helps to eliminate that kind of disparity that you will find between state schools as well I would say something that I've learned from being in a state school myself is that the one of the main differences between state schools private schools is that your kind of proximity to distraction and disruption is a lot closer than if you were in a private school so for example you're dealing with students who might not have their needs met and therefore might act out in behaviorally just kind of not acceptable ways and therefore you are more impacted by issues of behavior yeah I think it would be I mean I think it'd be really hard to administer I know this is like a, a hypothetical question um I think what you're describing is a bit it's like the 
opposite of the market-based system that has kind of grown up over the last couple of decades um, that we have seen the many problems with that, like schools going into a downward spiral when they have falling pupil numbers and they get a bad offset and then falling pupil numbers and their budget decreases and teachers leave. And that sort of downward spiral is incredibly bad for um, a lot of the poorest kids. Um, so I'm totally in favor for uh, one, trying to raise state education on the agenda of like all voters, anyone who is politically engaged and your your proposal would certainly do that, wouldn't it? It would kind of like all all parents would instantly have skin in the game. Um but but I think in in the system that we've given, like kind of like lifting the veil of ignorance in the system that we're in, we need to do something more to encourage kind of collaboration between schools rather than competition and collaboration between Ofsted and the DFE and and kind of the regulatory systems around a school. Um, do what we can to make those more supportive rather than um, kind of the market-driven competitive system that we have now. Yes, three cheers for that. I would be, uh, if, if, if I can't have random allocation to schools, I'll have that. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll let Ogale have the last word, but I just wanted to say that something we didn't touch on um, that I think Ogale has illustrated beautifully is the importance of having young people who are experiencing the education system right now involved in discussions about the education system. I think we've seen like that the firsthand experience of someone who has recently been through school or is in university um, is invaluable to thinking about where we need to go next and what we need to improve. So I would just give a big plug for more of that, more actually talking to young people and hearing what they have to say. Absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for having um, myself on the podcast. Just to echo what Janine said, I absolutely agree. Obviously, it sounds a bit rich coming from me because I am a young person. Um, but I feel like the voices of young people um, are, as Janine said, invaluable. Um, and they also very much like the whole use of lived experience is almost invaluable evidence um, to kind of support these kind of um, arguments and ideas that should be being pushed forward to make education fairer. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for letting me share my story. And it's been an absolute pleasure to be on your podcast. And that brings to an end the Friday morning break with John Gibbs. You've been listening to my discussion with Janine and Agali from the Fair Education Alliance. I've learned a lot today in my quest to understand what schools are for and this week I think I started with the answer and who's going to disagree that schools are for developing the potential and abilities of all students equally. It is an economic and personal tragedy for any country and individuals if they live in a society where that isn't true and yet I'm certain it isn't true of our country today. Do you have to be as brilliant and as extraordinary as Ogali? to succeed, to overcome what she described so eloquently as those silent barriers, silent to yourself, silent to society? Can you overcome the difficulties of living and working in a state school compared to the advantages of private education or the advantages of a middle-class background? And Janine was so eloquent in reminding me that schools can't solve these problems alone, that the inequalities are deeply embedded in society. However, 
I suspect what I've most taken away from today's discussion is above all, schools shouldn't actually make these things worse. And at times today in this discussion, and when I look at our society and my career in schools, I think they probably do. If you've enjoyed this discussion, you can listen again as a podcast on Spotify and multiple other platforms. You can leave comments, suggest future programs, or suggest yourself as a guest. Many thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. to you in partnership with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out! Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading!